Welcome back to Game Design with Richard Pullman. I'm Richard Pullman. This episode, I'm going to be talking with The Hummel, another GDG member, a cool guy who's working on a game called Showtime, which really sort of emphasizes uh, strategic showing off is, is one way of looking at it. You'll see how he describes it. I think it's a good example of how to approach a role-playing game design uh, from a perspective of trying to create a feeling, trying to create mechanics that match that feeling and, and not being a slave to simulationist logic or a narrative sort of uh, focus as much as sort of a set of principles that work together to drive action and drive interesting choices. And it does seem to me that this would be a game with a lot of interesting choices without being very complex. So kick back and enjoy. I hope you end up Going to GDG, talking to the Hummel about his game. I know he wants feedback. Everybody does. At least the the people who are serious about you know trying to sort through these problems and use the community and and help each other. So help him. He'll probably help you. He definitely has good ideas. So you can go to him if you if you have any issues with how you're trying to create things. Let's all help each other. That's what I'm trying to say. All right. Here's the episode. All right, so we're here with the Hummel, who's a member of GDG, and he wanted to talk about his game that he's now making called Showtime, and I'm happy to talk to him about it. Why don't you say hi and tell us about what Showtime is? Yeah, uh, hello there. First off, a pleasure to be here. would never have expected in my life to be talking on a pod- podcast of <laughs> any fashion. <laughs> um, yeah, so my game. It's... Uh, it's a bumbling process that went from places. Yeah. Thing is, um, I've been playing actively t- playing tabletop games for about six years now. I've been building them for at least ten, I guess. Okay. And um, the game went through a lot of iterations and uh, a lot of different actual end goals. It uh, was a bit more like. Uh, going into the direction of uh, Exalted and what's it called, uh, Legend of the Five Rings. Very Asian-inspired setting, just because that's like the vibe of things that interested me back then. And, uh, yeah, my interest broadens over time. And I'm a terribly, terribly disfocused person. I love uh, genre crossovers. I love sci-fi. I love fantasy. And I love it if those things just clash together. And both through not fitting together and fitting together in surprising ways. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's what I love most. So I never really decided on having a specific genre in my game. One thing I always knew I wanted to have is completely stupid over the top action. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because, um, most of the games I can already find out there are, um, well, not re- realistic or simulationist are both not the correct words, but they are pretty down to earth. And yet I've never found a game of the few ones that are actively over the top. Most of them have something that just does not click with me. Like Exalted is just another list of 50,000 abilities that you, that are pre-rendered, uh, pre-made. And right. yeah. Yeah. It's so just, I, mean, I don't know that much about games that 
really try to go for the over-the-top style. I haven't played any of them, but um, it sounds to me like a nightmare to try to, like, as a designer, if I think about designing a kind of game like that, it sounds really tough to design because what you would end up having is a, a tendency to come up with cool examples of powerful things, but then you don't really feel powerful as a player if you're just picking stuff from a list, I don't think. Like, you need to have creative power, don't you? Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, where where I try to go. Um, I guess some pretty important uh, inspiration that hit me over the last few years was um, a playing the Fantasy Flight Star Wars games. Oh yeah, and uh, playing a game of Cortex. That's actually uh, one of the people on GDG actually mentioned it the first time, uh, like a year back. And uh, then I decided to try it out, and I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I've been trying to make like those uh, new wave narrativist games, like Fate. Uh-huh. Uh, I was trying to make stuff like that happen with my group, and it just didn't happen. <laughs> they were just not the type for it. And then I found Cortex, and it went surprisingly smooth, because it's at its heart, it's the same game as Fate, I'd say. But because the way it's presented is just a bit more like the most other games out there. It's a bit, a bit more focused on rolling your dice and interpreting your dice instead of uh, throwing around meta currency and uh, talking about aspects. Yeah. Right. And that's what made it uh, click with people that um, enjoyed the D&D education, let's say that way. Right. I don't know anything about and, Cortex, but um, it's, it's sort of a middle ground between... Like a a narrative thing. It sounds like maybe what people would call like a rules light kind of thing, or is it? Yeah, it's um, simple uh, based on the fact that um, everything works over the same mechanic, and you use a lot of common sense while playing Cortex. You just name things that belong to a character, and you assign them a value, and that value is. Uh, expressed uh, as a die from d4 to d12 and then in the end uh, you assemble a pool out of those values like your core attributes your equipment uh, skills you might have and the the cool thing about cortex is that it decides um, what those aspects are depending on the game you're playing Um, if you're playing let's say marvel heroics then uh, your dice pool consists out of the fact what fellow superheroes are you working with? Uh, what are your superpowers? What's your mundane uh, ability? And uh, yeah, that, that's the basic of that. Hmm. Meanwhile, uh, Smallville, which is, of course, also a superhero setting, but a very different superhero setting, is looking about who are you acting against, who are you acting for, and in what fashion are you acting? Acting. Other games like Firefly and Leverage use a more traditional attribute plus skill plus equipment system that might be more comparable to traditional RPGs. Then I've seen a conversion to Mage the Ascension that uh, also assembles your, your pool from your general aptitude as a magician, your spe- specific uh, spheres of magic that you control, even for mundane things. If your it. sphere of magic fits, you add it to your pool. And um, that way, uh, everything works the same, yet just by deciding what things, what are the things that matter in this game, right? you create very different games. Yeah, I can see how 
that gives players a lot of freedom and would very quickly get them, uh, force them to think about their own character in a, on a more personal level, but still have a, a simple mechanic to sort of represent everything. So out of all of that, what was it that you sort of got out of it? What makes uh, your game Showtime more unique? What what inspired you to actually make it? Um, what I took from Cortex is um, that I realized that um, there are more things that matter when uh, when you take an action. There are more things that matter than just um, how strong you are and how how trained you are in lifting weights or whatever. <laughs> right. And how I went with that with Showtime is that um, I'm also assembling, you're also assembling a pool of dice that are ranked between the 4 and the 12, and you assemble them from some basic descriptions of um, your attributes, some basics of a character. I, I feel that just can't be avoided if you want to get... Uh, it's the rough picture of your abilities. I call it just attributes and affinities, whereas attributes are the classic things, you know, like strength. Mm -hmm. uh, in my games, it's strength, skill, instinct, and knowledge. Those coupled with um, the four affinities, as I call them, like um, primal, martial, technical, and mystical, Oh, okay. Uh, those those form the core of everything you do. You don't look like give me a deception check. It's more like give me a primal instinct check if you're out in the wild and looking for sounds and just reacting on being on alert. Meanwhile, um, if you're sitting down and carefully examining a machine, it's a technical knowledge check because right. uh, it's a different area of expertise and a different. Um, yeah, a different quality that is asked from the character in that point. That, that forms the core. Uh, to add on to that, there are also um, drives, which uh, come into play if things become personal. Drives, um, that's an inspiration I actually took from Burning Wheel, uh, from Burning Wheel's belief system. Right. Um, and some other games' uh, relationship systems. It's basically drives are both your beliefs about the world uh, your beliefs about other characters in the story, both uh, other player characters, uh, other NPCs. A drive is just a, a short sentence, uh, also assigned with a value. And whenever that drive applies to your check, you get uh, that bonus die to the pool. Um, continuing on that, um, yeah, that and equipment basically give up your basic pool, and uh, you have always the chance to invest more effort into something you do. Oh, okay. That's um, either taking longer in the overall fiction, if you're just doing some, let's say, narrative scenes without much structure. You can outright say, I'm not just doing this quick. I know I have a day, I have two days, I have a week to do this. I'm taking my time on this task. That is also a bonus. The thing is, you... As a trade-off, you get less things done. Um, I'm switching topics too fast, but time tracking is also something I love in game because it gives you the feeling that things have consequences in the long run. Yeah, I but, agree uh, with that. I, I I struggle with that when I was working on my game because there's some times when time really shouldn't matter. I mean, you could skip by a lot of time. Uh, for example, I also like the idea of in-between uh, adventures, like there, there should be downtime at some point between adventures. It shouldn't just be a constant, infinite climaxing, you know, adventure to mm -hmm. more and more scary things. So you can have those time skips, but for those times when, t when it does matter, you need to have a good system in place for that. Yeah. Um, 
it's pretty bare bones for me right now, but there is some value on scenes in between the action, even though the game revolves largely about the action. And uh, lastly, in combat only, the last thing you can add to a check is your style. Um, styles are just... Um, Every character has as, at least two of them. I'm still figuring out the details of how to uh, manage ama the amount of them, how much is right, how much is not enough. But um, what you do in combat is rather limited, and uh, I want people to switch up their strategies permanently. They cannot remain in, in the same style and do it over and over again. Um, but I'll get to that later. Okay, yeah. Um, what uh, otherwise, yeah. You assemble your pool, just like I describe it right now. Roll it, check it against the pool of your opponent or the environment or whatever. And basically you assign, sim, uh, you assign individual dice from that pool, usually the best one you rolled, to different things you want to achieve in that action. In combat, that would be, for example, one die for movement, one die for your attack, one die for just looking cool while doing it, because that's the whole point of the game. Um, that's the basic gist of it. Um, where uh, Fantasy Flight Star Wars comes in as an inspiration is basically um, whatever you have left allows you to, or it does not in the current build. I'm still figuring that out. But I want uh, that uh, leftover dice are not just discarded as chaff, but allow you to do to add some flourish to the actions. Right. To do some neat stuff, even if it's just a small mechanical benefits like moving a bit further or doing a little bit more damage. Um, yeah, and as well, they uh, are basically built-in reactions because um, when uh, somebody acts against you or you are acting uh, both against another character or an obstacle, uh, there is not only uh, failure and success, but also uh, currently I call them risks and um yeah, I think, uh, yeah, just call them advantages and risks right now. Um, those work similar like advantage and threat in uh, Fantasy Flight Star Wars, as in, um, yeah, let's say you want to climb a, a, an, an ice wall. Just climbing up there, yeah, success or failure. But even if you get up, if the ice wall rolled a leftover die that's high enough, it might impose uh, the condition onto that you come up there, but you land prone because you slip at the last second. Right. Um, that's one of the core features in the basic dice rolling that I want to have in there. It's still a bit rough because, again, I'm a bit uh, unsure where on that sliding scale between clear effects and improvisation I want myself. I was just going to ask get. you about that because, you know, I think everybody who designs a tabletop RPG has to at some point ask, you know, what you do with, excessive fail uh, excessive successes like critical successes or or these sort of like you want to make every dice roll potentially have some sort of surprise or twist in it because you're going to be doing it so much and you don't want it to always be predictable but you always come up to the 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 trouble of trying to either make a list of things that are always available to happen or a table to roll on or something or mm -hmm. you have to allow improvisation in which case you know, you're just really leaving it up to whoever that is running the game. Yeah. Um, currently, I'm um, favoring an approach that uh, says um, I'll 
most likely in the near future make up um, uh, set a scale on uh, what results mean what impact of uh, leftover of those extra dice results you have. Um, and you have improvisation to go from there. But I also want to uh, present some material just with the game itself that just shows you how things might get handled. Right, some examples. Yes, just things for people to draw inspiration from and get the idea on uh, how everything is yeah, supposed to be done. I imagine at some point you'd also want to have it a distinction between types of roles that can have negative effects and types of roles that are, you know, maybe just mundane enough that it wouldn't make sense for you to somehow get injured in the process or something like that, right? I mean, yeah. that or uh, you have to have separate tables, maybe. As for that, uh, the current base rule is um, that negative effects only happen if you're in uh, an action scene. Everything in between, uh, where it, it's just uh, character dialogue, exposition, um, exploration, um, uh, insofar as it, uh, if it's um, not as tense of exploration, like going uh, through a... I guess that's also exposition if you go through a new place that you have just haven't been to before. But uh, as soon as there is any kind of danger in the scene, then uh, basically negative uh, results begin to unlock. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and in general, uh, I feel that you usually don't need to roll during an, uh, a scene without danger. It's only uh, if it's it's only important in long running games. If you know, like, let's say the party has uh, a dear spaceship that got royally fresh during their last encounter, and uh, they want to see how much of it gets repaired before they continue their journey two weeks down the line. So you're just rolling to see how much damage you can repair in those two weeks. Yeah. But uh, you're not going to see if your ship will explode because you rolled that. That's stupid. Right. But, and, and I guess in your game, like you said, you're trying to go for a really over-the-top thing that sort of still has some grounding on it. Um, so in that sense, it probably would be pretty clear when you're in a situation that's over-the-top and high action yeah. versus not, whereas something like my game... Is kind of going to the uh, more of a gritty, like resource-based thing, where you know even small decisions can matter a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm not going necessarily for an over-the-top feeling anywhere. Uh, but yeah, that makes sense for your game. That it'd be pretty obvious when there are stakes or when there's danger involved. Mm. Um, yeah, resources are a good point. Um, I aim for. Uh my game to be fueled by two resources in special, um, and if possible, only those two. I've avoided anything else right uh, at this moment. Uh, they're called Resolve and Momentum, and um, they work pretty similar. They are just uh, a pool of points that uh, corresponds into dice ranks. Like um, You can trade in one point of momentum to uh, gain like a d4 as a bonus. You can trade in two to gain a d6 as a bonus, and so on. Uh, the thing is, momentum is your short-term resource for this scene only, while yeah. resolve is your long-term resource that keeps you going throughout the whole game. Um, characters are supposed to be nigh impossible to kill, I'd say. Um, if you lose a fight, even if you get completely put out of commission, if you have any resolve left, you will survive this scene. You will come back. You will come back broken and battered, but you will come back. 
And uh, yeah, and resolve is your starting point for your momentum when a scene, when an action scene begins. Oh, I see. Yes. So if there you're, are, if you're the at kind that of... point in time, there are the same value. Yeah. And then when you're making your character, I'm assuming it's like a point by sort of thing, or or is it more flexible than that? Because it'd be interesting to see um, somebody trying to maximize their resolve in that case to have a lot of momentum at the start of every uh, at the start of every scene. Uh, right now, I favor uh, a creation where everybody starts with the same momentum based on how long the game is supposed to go. If you sit down with your players and say, all right, let's uh, have three fun evenings with some stupid action, then give them so much resolve that things stay interesting. On the other hand, um, if you plan to play a year-long campaign in this thing, then um, you might get some extra resolve to start, but I feel that the best solution there would actually just for the GM to give more opportunities to regain resolve in the long run. Right. Because just saying outright, uh, yeah, you start with the double amount of resolve will make you stupidly powerful in the first few combats and the chance for you to fail will be almost non-existent. That's interesting to try to actually consider how long, not, not just assume that it's going to be a long campaign, but actually have guidelines based on how long somebody would plan on playing, and that's how, that could change the way you make these characters. Mm -hmm. um, overall, I feel like my game is best suited for um, yeah for short games that are, well, packed with action. <laughs> um, well, of course, one big inspiration was a lot of fighting games, character action video games like <laughs> Devil May Cry, Bayonetta, Monster Hunter. Oh. Stuff like that. Um, that's where I'm taking some mechanical inspiration from. I want to, uh, during the action, I want to give you that feeling that every single thing you do matters and contributes to your overall badass nest instead of some other over-the-top games, um, especially the more simple ones. Uh, Wushu comes to mind. They live from the fact that, um, yeah, you just do one big I'm a badass role, count how much successes you get, and then you get to explain how bad as you are. <laughs> and I want uh, to go in reverse. I want people to think, what do I have to do to be a freaking badass? And then reward them for doing so. That's a good goal. Instead of, instead of seeing uh, uh, before you do the thing how bad as you are allowed to do. You're as allowed to be as badass as you can think of. That's the only limit. So how about uh, just a, like a quick example of, you know, a situation, I don't know if you've play tested it or not, but I'd be curious to see how it plays out in terms of a guy trying to pull off something and the kind of roles he would do and how that would affect his chain of action. Mm -hmm. um, phew, um, yeah, I'm a bit far off from play, play testing it. Um, I'm still cobbling together a lot of things, but... Um, one thing that can be pretty sure is um, I'll go ahead with uh, an example I had earlier this day. Um, let's say you have a guy with a grappling hook. Um, the thing is, uh, you'd most likely roll the same things. Uh, this, you, you roll the same dice, but uh, the way you describe it leads to very different outcomes. Um, you can uh, go ahead and use the grappling hook to draw someone into you and then attack them, for example, with your actual melee weapon. Um, or you can draw yourself towards them. Uh, on the other hand, you can draw yourself up in the air to a vantage, vantage point and then drop onto them. And again, 
another option you might have is um, that you attack them not via any physical weapon you, you, you yourself wield, but um, you knock something over in the environment and try to hit them with that using your grappling hook. That's all the same role. It's, let's say, um, it's your martial power because it's a forceful attack in the right. first place. Um, the equipment rating of your grappling hook, um, whatever combat style you would be in at that point, most likely a style that emphasizes the use of your grappling hook. And, um, yeah, then you draw that pool and assign one die into uh, the success of the attack. Uh, one die in uh, whatever type of movement you uh, used, uh, whether it's uh, your opponent moving towards you, you towards him, or you to, uh, moving towards some area feature. Um, and then whatever dice are left uh, would most likely go uh, towards thinking up some cool other things to do, as we already talked about, that whole advantage-risk situation. Yeah. Meanwhile, your opponent would describe the way he would try and resist that. Uh, assemble, um, let's say you're attacking a mage, and that mage says uh, he wants to protect himself with some sort of shield spell. Uh, then he'd roll his, um, let's say, mystic power, because it's also all about just putting out raw force, but because it's ma magical defense, he's using his um, mystical affinity instead of his martial affinity. Right. Um, then let's say he has a wand for equipment rating, and... Uh, some style that uses defensive magic, and that ends up uh, being a similar pool to yours. You match dice against each other, check if the movement succeeds, um, check if the attack succeeds, check if any other uh, effects happen. If, like, uh, he might say in that case that uh, he incurs risks on you, that uh, debris of the falling environment might get reflected by his shield in your direction, inflicting some damage. Right. Um, so both yeah. sides, both sides basically get to, you know, yes. make up a bunch of nonsense and, and see how it interacts. Uh, and it would basically in encourage a lot of creative uh, problem solving and trying to escalate things and counter each other. Yes. Um, the reason why I brought that example is, um, because, uh, here's the thing. In theory, nothing would stop you, uh, from repeating that action over and over. Again, if that's your best pool of dice. Um, the thing is, uh, I want to prevent it. I don't want people to spam the same action just because it's effective. Right. And uh, the reason, and on the other hand, it would be totally okay if he went and rolled that very same pool four times in a row, if he gave me those four descriptions of that move that I just gave you. Because he's varying up what he does, even if it's in rule terms, the same thing. And uh, if he would not vary up what he does, that would not be cool. That would mean his style decays. Oh. And thus, if he repeats actions, those actions via rule enforcement become less and less effective because he keeps uh, the die size he rolls, becomes smaller and smaller, and he has less and less chance of beating whatever dice his opposition has uh, to throw against him. Yeah, I, I understand that. That makes sense from a mechanical point of view, but if you think about the situation too, it might make sense that doing the same thing over and over makes you very predictable and people would, if you have an opponent, I mean, it, you want, you want your system to apply to when you're not in a fight as well, if you're just exploring or dealing with other problems. So I understand why you did it the way you did, but in a fight, it would also make sense that you're becoming predictable and that kind of thing. That's kind of interesting. 
That's true. That's actually not uh, not even a factor I've been thinking about. <laughs> but that's also a way to to look at it. Like, yeah, that's a good way to explain it in the fiction. Um, yeah. So, so let me ask what 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 stage are you at with this game? What would you say? Uh, if you haven't, if you're not ready to play test, but you have, basically, it sounds like a pretty solid foundation here. Um, honestly, I feel like I'm uh, done with uh, what the character consists of. I don't think I will be adding anything there. Um, what re- really needs uh, some fleshing out is uh, largely uh, just a list of examples on what uh, risks and advantages can be. I just need to put, just for self-reference, something out there so I can actually go out and playtest something and have things ready to try out and look how they work. That's definitely what I need. Um, and I need to balance out uh, creation a little and some, let's say, uh, more special effects, uh, things like uh, area moves, status uh, conditions. Um, right. Figuring out when movement is balanced because um, it would be kind of boring if someone is allowed to fly all the fucking time. Uh-huh. Even if the character has wings, there should be something he has to do to earn his right to stay airborne the whole combat. Huh. Um, yeah, that's another thing with these over-the-top games. I mean, it's it's a different set of problems than like because I, I immediately think, well, okay, it costs energy to fly. You know, you, it takes effort to do that or whatever, but. You know, if you want to have an over-the-top game, you have a certain promise, essentially, that you're giving players that you will be able to do these things that it would be overpowered in other games. Um, I'd say overpowered might not even the thing I want to achieve. Uh, I don't want... Uh, characters will most likely have some background that makes them uh, just a tad... That makes them stand out from the crowd. Like, uh, characters will be things like demon hunters, uh, cyborgs, stuff like that. It will be definitely a stupid, not stupid, um, it will be an unusual cast of characters. Right. But, um, there are not supposed to be, uh, outright demigods that can, uh, delete a nation with a thought. We had at GDG today the, some talk about Exalted and about how people with their starting character already were able to annihilate a whole nation if they wish to do so. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And that's not what I'm going for. I want for characters that are able, but they have to earn what they do. The things, they go, they go up against things that are just as crazy as they are, but they, they have to earn being that amazing personality they are. That's what I was hoping you would say. Because, are allowed to be it. Yeah, I was hoping you'd say that because it's sort of a purely over-the-top thing where you're just trying to. I mean, at that point, I feel like you're playing essentially a comedy game. You're, you're just. You, there's no way you can take it seriously when you have that powerful of a starting character, and and it would be almost impossible to create challenges that would be interesting, really, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wanted to talk about uh, meta currency, and I figured that that's probably something that you know is a big discussion, a big topic in general in RPG design. But uh, in your game, you have uh, resources of momentum and resolve. That momentum isn't quite a 
a character resource. It sounds a little bit like a meta currency, but it's not yeah. quite as as much of a meta currency as obviously like fate points or something like that. Yeah. Uh, what momentum represents is your overall um, uh, your control of the situation. It's um, perception. It's good positioning. It's just confidence, for example, as well. Um, oh, so it is and, a character uh, property. It's just more of a uh, the situational, you know. Uh, yeah. Okay, um, that makes sense. The way momentum uh, works is um, for run uh, high momentum means high initiative. You go from highest uh, momentum to lowest in the current round. Um, you gain momentum for uh, doing things that are favored by your combat style, and uh, you have to use it to do things that are disfavored by your style. Um, there are just some things... Uh, yeah, that's that's really all about it. And um, Okay. If but, you attack someone, there are basically two uh, two intentions you can have. One is to rob them of their momentum. That represents um, those famous, let's say, that what D&D hit points represent as well. Strikes nearly missing, pressuring your opponent, tiring him out, getting him back into a corner. That's what losing momentum means. But you inflict no harm when you go for an attack that uh, decreases momentum. Right. On the other hand, there are finishing moves, which you basically say you dedicate a certain part of your own momentum. You will be slower. You have to, when you go for this move, you have to accept that you will be wide open afterwards. It either has to hit or you went into early and you blew it completely. And um, th those are the attacks that actually deal damage and can inca incapacitate characters. Um, the reason... Why you just can't go for finishers willy-nilly is, as I just said, you expand your man momentum to do so, yeah. then you're low on it. And then can pe people can go ahead and pressure you. And once you reach zero, you're um, off balance is the state in my game. And when you're off balance, bad things happen. Everything starts to hurt you. Things that you could have evaded w without much thought will begin to hit you. And uh, unless you get out of there and take a breath, you will get fucked when you're off balance. <laughs> you know, I really like that. I think that's a great way of creating a dramatic, but also a very strategic choice where, you know, you can basically, like, working as a group, of course, you would want to probably first put somebody at a disadvantage and take away their momentum before you try to do the, the killing blows. And then when you do it, if you miss, then now suddenly you're at a disadvantage and maybe that person has had a time to recover or something like that. Yes. That's the idea behind it. I really like that. Um, let, let's move on to the, uh, to like your, um, your sort of workflow and the, and the lessons you've learned. Cause you said you were working on this for a long time. Oh yes. Um, yes. Um, as I said, this began as a project, uh, of, uh, Yes, very Japanese-inspired nature. Uh, like it began as, as it does so often with a setting instead of some game mechanics or anything. Mm -hmm. And oh boy, I had no idea about game mechanics back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, how long? Like uh, five or six years ago, or not that long? Yeah, six, six years is uh, hits it pretty well. Um, thing is, uh, I've been dreaming about playing pen and paper games for ages. Um, I've been back in high school. Thing is, I couldn't find a group. 
I uh, either I didn't save up the money for a rule book and also didn't feel it was worth to buy a rule book just for myself yeah. because uh, I had really two friends that were engaged in any sort of traditional gaming and it was more like uh, skirmish wargaming and uh, Magic the Gathering. Those were our games. Oh, right. Yeah, and my two friends from back there, they are pretty gamey about stuff. They take the game as it is, but they don't think beyond the game. And I was always the guy dreaming of what if and thinking about the fiction behind all of it. And thus, uh, when, I, when I first heard about uh, pen paper games and tabletop role-playing, I was completely enchanted by the idea of it. Uh I actually found an, uh, a free copy of Shadowrun 4th Edition back then uh, at my local game store and tried to uh, to get my two friends uh, to try and play a game with me. Yeah. Didn't go well. <laughs> the characters didn't even uh, leave their, their flat. Well, one did leave uh, his flat and uh, just went around the block and did just some complete nonsense and did everything to avoid actually going out there and being a shadow runner. Uh, meanwhile, the hacker sat in his hacker cave and tried to hack completely uh, stuff that was actually completely out of his league. But I was 15 and GMing for the first time in my life. And I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, go, go and try and hack the Pentagon. G give me some roles. All right. Four successes. Well, uh, oh. the Pentagon is a pretty tough nut to crack. I guess you only uh, get access to the cleaning schedules. And so the Pentagon <laughs> wasn't get clean for like four weeks. And that's all we did. And uh, then the evening ended and I was kind of lost. They were kind of disinterested, and so we went back to playing our usual stuff. But uh, for me, it was a fun experience because I knew, oh boy, I want to do that again. Wow. Yeah, uh, and then, I mean, then I got fast to the university get... and actually found a very small group. Uh, some people went, uh, some people came, but uh, we're, we're pretty much uh, the same uh, team as most of the time. Until now, we uh, have about six years of gaming experience together. We've been through countless uh, games. It's been a cool, uh, a very cool ride. Um, and yeah, pretty early on, I was starting to brew around a bit. Um, I was, of course, more focused uh, focused on the setting, on whatever cool stuff, uh, races and classes and whatever stuff could there be. Uh, starting to uh, design it like uh, from the front end of the book to the back end, like starting with character creation and random tables uh, to roll on and cool things you can get. Like uh, I've spent a substantial amount of stuff working on like a samurai class uh, that uh, which whole signature. Uh, yeah. The whole signature thing of that class was getting uh, a relic weapon passed down through the ages uh to your character. Which, and having you're saying this is a homebrew? Uh, yeah, it was pretty much a uh, homebrew, completely decoupled from any existing games. Oh, so, so uh, but what, what game were, were you playing? Like, were you playing Dungeons & Dragons, or were you... Um, yeah, we're, we've been playing uh, a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. Back then, uh, might have been the time when we played a bit of Pathfinder. Okay. We started with 4th edition. It didn't click with us. Then we went on to Pathfinder, and... Yeah, something about Pathfinder is there that makes it easy to get inside if you're new to the thing. 
now looking back on it, uh, fourth is definitely the game I'd rather play. Uh, and once fifth came out, we were, we all went on the hype train. And oh, yeah. Yeah. So you're, it, you're, you said you're playing on roll 20? Um, <laughs> those are different friends. Um, I'm talking about my real life group right now at the, at university. Oh, okay. Yeah. The guys I've been uh, with uh, in front of that were people I've known about uh, through Skype, fun enough uh, through internet writing forums, uh, some League of Legends. And it's just uh, another circle of friends, and we only meet up online due to uh, living at completely different ends of the country. But, yeah, I got them to play a little bit of uh, D&D. It was just starting out as a joke, and finally I got them after, like, Two years of joking, they actually decided to give it a try, and uh, it was supposed to be a one-shot. It became a small campaign, <laughs> right? But yeah, yeah. And then so from there, you you homebrew stuff, and I imagine it basically yeah. uh, started to feel more and I, more I like think you could I've actually at make least your own read system. or played everything popular under the sun, and I have ha, ha, and had elements from so much things in there. It's not even pretty anymore. Stuff started out as a D20 game. Then uh, I went. I discovered dice pools. I've discovered pools where you, uh, where one stat decides how many dice you roll, and the other decides where the success threshold lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I tried just uh, like straight two d ten at together, two d six at together. Then I tried different pool sizes of d sixes added together. I've been trying so many die mechanics like most uh, beginning designers seem to do because uh, the feeling is like it's all in the dice, it's all in the dice, it's nothing is in the dice. Dice I need to have. Knowing which dice to use is great. You can make the most amazing game, uh, maybe not with a coin flip, but a d6 is all you really need if you really, really try it. Yeah, I think I pretty much came to the same conclusion. It's... It does feel like the dice you roll and the, the physical randomizing elements that you use are, you know, so important because that's what you think your game really boils down to. But I think that character creation ends up becoming a lot more important by the yeah. end. And, and then the resolution mechanic, that's kind of the shift that happened for me is yeah. going from dice mechanics to character building and and then also having a lot of specific rules and subsystems to sort of having mm-hmm. more of a um, guidelines and a structure for how how the adventure plays out uh, on a bigger picture instead of these smaller detail oriented systems. Yeah, um, I think where where games come down to is uh, how people behave and not what they do to uh, represent that behavior in the game. Yeah, that's probably a good way of putting it. Um, how would you say, you know, you kind of mentioned before that, uh, before we started recording that you thought that, uh, we should discuss GNS or, or game design theory in some ways. And I mean, it's, neither of us has put out a, you know, a fully finished proper game, but, um, it's always interesting to look at the examples out there and see once you actually start developing it and you try to finish your own game. What do you think about something like a GNS or what you just barely said about behavior being more important than um, the resolution? The thing is, um, what GNS does well to me is um, that it describes which aspects of a game create enjoyment for people. Um, at least what I feel, what it uh, tried to do 
when it first came out was um, give a way to uh, almost scientifically pin down what a game is all about. At that at that task, it failed. What it achieved to do is uh, explain why people play games, really. And uh, yeah, that to me is for one why people play role-playing games in specific or some, uh, let's say, uh, more scenario-driven war games, for example, as well. They play those games because they like seeing a story unfold. They like seeing, um, yeah, things happen in ways they would not have expected. And just those oddball-out moments, they like giving a piece of plastic character and story. On the other hand, there are just people, and I'm absolutely count myself into them that like winning and that like seeing just those mechanics of a game grip into each other like clockwork and create this yeah this just natural flow of creating that story creating something engaging to do in your pastime you know um one thing i love in video games for example uh is now and then i boot up i boot up league of legends and I don't play it the way it's supposed to play. I don't play 5v5 competitive people online versus people. I play against bots. I pick some character I've never played. And I pick some items that are just completely suboptimal. And I try to see if I can make them work. That's one thing I love about game mechanics. You're just, just trying to see they... what is possible. Right, because it's like the interactions themselves are what's the entertainment, is seeing how things interact. Yeah. It's like... It's like tinkering with a clockwork or some other machinery. You do things that are not neither smart, uh, nor do they have any higher purpose other than doing them. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I'm reminded of uh, what I heard. Uh, the One of the main designers of uh, Magic the Gathering, um, he was talking about the three types of players that he noticed. And I don't know if you're familiar with that. But to me, in a way, it's more helpful than GNS. I didn't really, I, I listened, I read the whole thing about GNS. I really didn't get much out of it. Um, but he had sort of a similar approach of three types of players. One is all about trying to win. One is about exactly what you just barely said, trying to, uh, you know, explore the mechanics and the interactions. And the other one was somebody who wants to express themselves. And so the whole game ended up, uh, for those players, ended up being about, they don't care about winning, and they don't really care about the, you know, mechanical interactions that much, but what they really want is the ability to do something that nobody else does, that kind of speaks to their, um, their personality. Yeah. If it were not for my wallet, I feel like I could easily, at a moment's notice, go back to playing Magic. Um, I feel Magic has, um, um, I feel uh, games are at their best when they are not um, either G or N or S. They are best when they are G and S. They, you need some, yeah, some reason to do it, be it competition, be it just outright enjoyment and socializing. That's the, the game part. You want, you want some fiction to uh, explain it. I mean, even the simplest board games for childs tend to have some sort of, let's say, a skin that you put over those rolling dice and moving plastic tokens across a paper board. Right, it would It would not be as fun if you were just moving uh, tokens on squares. It becomes a lot more fun if it's snakes and ladders. Yeah. And um, again, and lastly, uh, yeah, that was the narrativist part. And uh, lastly, there are simulations 
which bleed over a bit um, into the narrativism. It, yeah, it bleeds over into the narrative because um, some people want their simulation because it simulates simulates the narrative that they want to have. That that describes it to me pretty good. Um, thing is less about simulation of uh, how good it is a simulation. It's more important what it simulates. It's a completely different thing if you want to simulate uh, realistic Napoleonic warfare or if you want to simulate uh, drifting across endless space like Spelljammer, if you have a setting with mages and wizards in space, yeah. that's something completely different to simulate and something where there's a real frame of reference, and thus it feels unrealistic and less simulationist because it makes things up, because it does not know with what to compare them. Yeah, it's very it's, hard to represent things accurately when you're dealing with magic and science fiction, but... You can still try to be, still have an internal logic that is driving the mechanics and trying to be true to itself in that sense. And I don't know, I, I find, uh, right now actually on, there's a, there's another GDG member called Dark God who is trying to yeah, revive yeah, a, a discussion of GNS. And I find that very interesting because he has sort of a different take on that. <laughs> That same model, it does, he doesn't discredit it as saying that it's, it's bad. He just has basically a different take on it. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people do recognize that there are basically at least three main appeals of this sort of, uh, activity. I mean, it's a, it's a very abstract thing. So you need to have a lot of imagination to make it interesting because there's no graphics. There's none of that. But at the same time, there needs to be some teeth to it and some mechanical depth to it in order for there to be you know, for it to not just go off the rails and, and be completely freeform or whimsical or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it'd be silly to say that, you know, there's any game that's purely, you know, G, N, or S. And I, I, I would agree that you need to have something for everybody. And I don't think that's hard to do either. And I don't, that's kind of why I find G, N, S such a weird discussion in general is because mm-hmm. it's like, isn't it kind of obvious that you need to appeal to all three to some extent? And why is it so hard to like give people an opportunity to express themselves and give people an opportunity to strategize and give people other people an opportunity to just sort of have uh you know win conditions and clear goals and stuff like i'm i'm not really sure who, what designer sits down and like thinks according to gns and gets anywhere with it whereas you know just describing different player types and understanding that there's mm-hmm. a lot of overlap between them to me that's more of a useful Metric and, and what this guy, just going back to what that other guy had said about, uh, magic, he was saying that, you know, basically they would put a, a card and they would realize, you know, or they would plan for it to be appealing to everybody, all three, you know, types of players because it had some of this and it had some of that, but that anything that tried to appeal to all three at once would be hated by everybody, but that the only way to make anyone happy is basically to appeal to one or two of them, and then the other one will just basically never use it, never actually include it in their deck. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and so they sort of like had this rule that it's better to piss off people and make one guy very happy uh, than to try to make everybody happy, and in the end, everyone will be disappointed by it. Not- <laughs> yes. Uh, that, that reminds me a bit of Edition Wars, really, because... Um... People uh, keep nagging on because that game is shit, that game is shit, whatever. And even if those games are in the same line, 
and have their differences. It's because the design designers decided, yeah, we want to, we are okay with pissing some people off that it's not the same game, but it's a better game in what it is supposed to do because of that. Yeah. I, I find that to be very interesting from a, like, I don't know if anybody starts off with such a, such a high level theoretical view of game design. I mean, usually you have a couple of points of inspiration or you're trying to fix the mistakes of a different system or something. But in the end, when you actually kind of plant your own flag and decide that this is a unique thing that you want to make and it's going to be original, mm -hmm. you do have to, at some point, step back and ask, who's actually going to be playing this and who am I okay with pissing off? Like, who do I not care about at all? Mm -hmm. And And what sacrifices am I willing to make to make the people I am directing this towards to make them really happy. Yes. Um, that's one thing my uh, theoretical knowledge about is all skyrocketed uh, back when I discovered that uh, TG has a Discord and found the dev channel and even more so once GDG became a thing. Yeah. Um, and that's the point at uh, which I began realizing the psychological impact that a choice in my game that a rule has, what that makes people think about it and which people might like that and how it works in the bigger picture. Back then I would like go ahead and design a spellcasting system or some ability or something because it sounded pretty cool to have something like that. <laughs> and then now looking back on it, I think, yeah, it's still cool to have something like that. But oh boy, is this broken. And not even in the way that it's broken because it makes an overpowered character or anything. But it's broken because it creates problems in the long run. Like um, things that do not move forward the game that are just, just are there must be resolved because you have decided with your group that we are going to follow those rules. And then they start getting in the way. Um, that's one thing we had... Um, I had, uh, back in the day, uh, an amazing freeform group writing, uh, it was, yeah, just uh, your run-of-the-mill fantasy setting, uh, a lot of stuff stolen by war uh, from Warcraft, honestly. <laughs> right, yeah, it's always good to but, steal from. Um, but we went ahead and uh, really made it our own. We were adding things nonstop, and um, we, did not, we did not need any rules to be on the same page about what is going to happen next. We uh, had those rules more like um, sometimes unspoken, sometimes outspoken agreement between each other. That's how things are going to go. And that is more important than the actual, the fact that you agree upon it is more important than the way how you resolve it. If you agree upon talking stuff out, thinking what would be dramatic, you're playing a freeform game. If you're agreeing upon yeah, if we don't know what's going to happen, we ask the dice. It's the same thing, just a different contract, one yeah. might say, yeah, I to think, the same ends. I think that's a pretty accurate way of, of summing it up. Uh, I know as a designer, I always am thinking about the psychological... I, I tend to think of every feature I put in as being a relationship that a player has. And I thought of this... Mm -hmm. um, with when I was actually thinking about video games, uh, because it was so weird to me. I was playing, I think I went back and played, uh, old Mega Man games. I never used to play Mega Man games when they were new, uh, but I went back and played some of the old ones. And I realized that the things that actually pissed me off the most in that game, and they felt like the, I was the most anxious 
when I saw them and I had the most hatred towards, they would be like these little enemies that would just come out of nowhere and they weren't supposed to be a boss character or anything like that. But I would be like, I would almost feel like quitting the game as soon as I saw them. <laughs> but meanwhile, a huge boss that's supposed to be scary, I would just have fun with and it would not bother me at all. And, and at the same time, there'd be like weird, like the power-ups would... And I started, it was so clear at some point as I was playing that, that the relationship I had with some of the elements of that game were totally skewed in a way that I don't think the developers would have intended. Um, and, and it made me very self-conscious about the idea of basically you have a relationship with every element of the game. And if you're not as a designer conscious of what it's going to do, if you throw in something very small, like, um, I saw a, a YouTube video just recently that was, uh, talking about the, the impact of good berries in Dungeons and Dragons and how. Uh, oh, I saw that one that was animated. Yeah, yeah. Bit. That animated yeah. thing. And I, I don't, I'm not watching that whole video series, but I did see that one and it made me very interested in the, exactly that sort of example where the design, designers might have said, well, this just sounds like something that would be neat, you know, for, for a certain situation and, it's just all around useful, so why not put it in there? But it completely changes the relationship players have with the idea of starvation, period. And so you're basically eliminating an entire type of drama in your game if these, if this one thing exists and it's not hard to get and it's very easy to do. So that's the sort of thing where the things that you want to feel dramatic and you want to put importance on, you have to take that psychological stance on it and that's really where the game design gets tough because you have to balance what what are players already worrying about what are they what are they looking forward to what are they sort of fearing and then you introduce another element into it and that I had that problem so much with my system that's why I'm so aware of it is that um you can't overload people's brains too much but at the same time you want to give them more than enough to think about it at any given point and have the group that's the other thing people don't think about a lot of times is that you have a group that's going to be playing this and they can help each other out and they're they're going to talk through the problems together and sort of compensate for each other. If one guy is sort of hesitating, the other guy might push him forward and the other one, you know, they're sort of a, all there to help each other. But you have to then realize that at the same time that one guy might only care about winning and the other guy might care about expressing himself. And so they're not really going to help each other much because they don't care about the same thing. Mm-hmm. And GDG is great for, I think, I agree, you know, for sort of bringing up these topics and getting uh, totally different perspectives on games. You'll have people that are, you know, completely about simulation and and they don't really care about, you know, people telling the storytelling part of it because they think that's just something that emerges out of the, the game mechanics. It's not something you have to consciously put in because it's just going to naturally happen that there's a story that happens, but... People all come in with their own biases and their own strong opinions. That's why I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, to get back at, uh, since we didn't actually that much about uh, that, since we didn't actually talk about that much about meta currency, um, I think that's a pretty good point to spin back around it. Yeah. Because there are those those big games that are made to tell a story instead of the story being just a side product of playing that game. Right. Uh, exactly. Like the big two I I'm aware about are of course uh, uh yeah, Fate and Cortex, which are really the same game in slightly different clothing to me. And uh 
One thing they really do, um, and also because I just went onto the GDG thread and uh, Artificer also mentioned Misfortune. I think Misfortune also comes into play into uh, as a similar type of game because, as he said, he um, he made it so it tells a story, like it creates basically a book. Those three games uh, are, uh, yeah, as, as he basically wrote himself here, as I'm reading right now, that um, while his meta currency works very different from the one in those other two games, it serves the same purpose in that it uh, creates a feedback loop when um, you do things that are dramatic. Yeah. You don't want to think, you don't want to do things that are optimal because you just can't all the time. It just does not work. It's not a game to solve. It's a game where you're supposed to create. And, uh, while, uh, Fate and Cortex have more like, uh, let's say positive feedback loops. Um, if you do something that's bad for your character, uh, you get rewarded for that. You get to shine somewhere else. If you accept that you are flawed. Meanwhile, uh, in this, now that I think about it, um, you get to say where you shine. You don't <laughs> have your, to earn your right where you shine. You can roll that skill check or whatever it is. You can roll until you succeed. You will yeah. do this, but you get punished way later. Yeah. And you can't decide where you get punished. That, think... that, that's, a, that's a very different approach to it, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, about the same thing in its basic effect. Also, one thing all those three games have in common is um, that uh, they use a lot of common sense. They just give you a prompt, uh, a few words to think about. And from that point on, they just let your thoughts fly and things just get moving. And I feel it needs a certain kind of person to be in on that, a kind of person that loves to sit down and tell a story and just, even if they just add a detail and let everything flow from there. It does not work with the kind of person that um, wants to roll a die, look at the table and say, all right, that happens. Right. I know uh, also for myself, like this is something I, I really find nobody's talking about, but maybe it's because it's, maybe it's taboo. I don't know. But to me, the, the social dynamic at the table is something that needs to be considered a lot. And there are just people who are self-conscious mm -hmm. to the point where they don't want to invent a story hook or some backstory for their character or, you know, anything that requires them to really open up with some sort of imaginative uh, solution or answer. It puts them in an awkward spot just socially. Even if they have ideas, they don't want to feel stupid in front of their friends saying, Oh, my guy does this, and then it's like, oh, he's he's judging himself a lot based on what he says, and that's where a game that handles a lot of that for you and tells you this is what happens, and then he can go, oh, okay, good, so that's what happens. I can role play with that, and I can make the decisions. I just don't want to be in the position where I'm I'm you know being the theater impro improv actor and yeah, it's it's more like I I want to be given a situation and work from it instead of creating the situation. Yeah, they want to explore a a situation and a, a story or a complication. They don't want to be part of the building process because mm -hmm. especially if what you decide and what you create affects what the other people at the table are going to do yeah. and what they have to deal with, there's a there's a certain vulnerability and um 
and a, and a weight and a, a burden that comes with that where mm-hmm. you don't want to say I mean, something that, oh, now this guy said he's going to, you know, light all the, the, the forest on fire and then, you know, all of our characters are going to have to run out of the forest and it's going to be a big pain in the ass for everyone else or whatever. Like, the more you enable people to just sort of improvise wacky things, the more it puts these people who are very conscientious in a very awkward spot because the one thing that they really want to avoid is pissing other people off and making it awkward for other players at the table. And yeah, that's 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 the human factor. That's just something you cannot really you cannot account for. I mean, both those approaches are valid somewhere, but only very few people are able to uh, play them out uh, both. Lots of people are just stuck somewhere. And I don't want to say that uh, that's the fault of those people. We are just people. It's just the way we work. And sometimes we freeze up and we are brain dead even when we're actually pretty good at this. And uh, Yeah, but uh, it leads to very different expect- expectations of what is allowed to do at the table, as you just said. Yeah, like this... And and I also think like you know generally obviously uh, tabletop role playing games are played by guys and they're probably between you know thirteen and thirty or forty or however old it, go- it it gets I don't know what the average would be but you know in the end you're playing usually with other guys and I don't know a lot of people drink when they're playing and they that's how they loosen up and they relax and they you know they have beers and and that's actually part of the game process. And I've heard people explain it as being, you know, it's just a social thing and it's very having a good time. But maybe I'm too much of a psychoanalyst here. But, you know, I, I think that when people are drinking and, and, and socially to do something as basic as playing like a tabletop role playing games that are made for kids, you know, it's there's probably a certain element where they're just trying to get into a comfort zone where they can be a little bit more vulnerable and say things that, you know, would be awkward otherwise, like especially when people have to talk in their character's voice and they do an accent or they do something else. It's I've observed people playing in real life and you can just see that that guy at the table who's really awkward doing it and he's only doing it because he has to and everybody else at the table is doing it. And uh, and in my own game, that pretty much led me to wanting to create a strong alternative for having to role play your character's dialogue. Um, and it, it sort of raised a lot of questions. I don't know if I've solved it yet, but I am at, at the very least, I'm very conscious of trying to be friendly towards people that really, they want to get into the strategy of the game and they want to get into the, the thinking of their character, but they don't want to have to act like a, an actor at the table. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Um, I mean, uh, I catch myself, especially when uh, running games, I catch myself uh, just paraphrasing what uh, an NPC would say. I'm not a very good natural actor or anything. Uh, I'm at my best when I have time to write stuff. I love playing text games, uh, for example, because um, that's the moment where I get my best quip. yeah. Where I get to bring a stupid wit, witty comment and I get a proper in character reaction. I get it 30 seconds later, but I get it. But uh, while playing out on the table, I tend to run uh, stuff that's, um, yeah, that's a bit more to the point uh, where the situation matters and the character in the situation matters a little less. 
Um, we've all in my current, uh, in my real life group, um, we've all decided that our next game is going to be as role playing heavy as possible. Oh, okay. And uh, even though it's D and D fifth edition, which is not like the most let's say, role-playing, boosting game there is. But uh, we just try our uh, darn best to talk out dialogue, to gesture around, to talk about things that are not um, at the core of the adventure, but just to try and be everyday characters in this world. And it's working surprisingly well. It's really all a thing of experience, willingness to do things, willingness to go out of your comfort zone sometimes, and to accept it's how it accept yeah and to accept it how it goes really yeah i know i've actually there's every now and then i guess it's probably pretty rare but you'll get a character in a in a situation like something like dungeons and dragons which doesn't keep track of you know the emotional state of your character it doesn't try to simulate anything that personal um or internal but you'll get a character, a person at the table who's so in character and is so trying to think of, like, for example, uh, their family just got killed or some horrible thing just happened and their character would be devastated and in shock and not willing to, to even do anything, you know, pretty much willing to die. And at the, then they're sort of conflicted when they have to start playing again because it's like, do I actually put myself at a disadvantage and just not roll an attack in this situation even though... I know my character would, you know, not be fighting right now, but, you know, that's the game mechanics don't force me to do it, and it's really suboptimal to not be fighting, and it's sort of a... That's where I find it interesting that you and your group actually agreed to do role-playing heavy ahead of time, and that, to me, is the key thing, is that you you consciously decided to do it that way so that there's not just three people deciding to do it kind of naturally, and the, the other guys, you know, not on the same page you have to all kind of agree to do it that's what makes it probably a lot smoother mm -hmm. yeah definitely um it really helps that we're playing together the, such a long time it's um i often feel that um well in the modern day and age uh things are easier to find but also easier uh harder to keep together oh that's a good like, point um, yeah. Uh, Roll20 to me feels uh, a bit to me like um, video game matchmaking. It's like you get in there, you have some wait time that you have to sit through, then you get to play, and then you part ways and never meet again, or uh, only under very, very specific circumstances. Um, and that, I feel, is something tabletop games don't work well with. Um, it's a hobby that takes dedication, but uh, the dedication, if it pays off, is so rewarding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure. uh, I could be sitting here right now uh, booting up some video game instead I'm sitting uh, in a podcast <laughs> and talking about this. And it's uh, honestly, I wouldn't have thought this to be this much fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Just to mention that, to just get that aside. Um, <laughs> well, I appreciate one that. One thing that's... Uh, been flying around in the back of my head uh, the whole time was one last thing I uh, would like to uh, what's the word one last thing I'd like to present about my own game sure. which I'm pretty proud of and feel it's like one of the best ideas I've had is uh, the way I handle character advancement I already mentioned I have this uh, drive system uh, with beliefs and relationship uh, and um, 
one thing it does is whenever you feel like a drive is relevant to your team, you get a, a bonus, you gain some bonus momentum, you get a bonus die for this action, and then that drive is done for. It's been checked. It will not get referenced anymore this scene, just to prevent things from being drawn out and, again, to prevent things from starting to repeat itself. Now, uh, once the scene is done, once we, you know who won, what happened, how uh, the action played out, what got destroyed, whatever, um, you sit down with the whole group and uh, look over which drives were attacked, and you uh, have those drives evolve. You increase their die size by one, they get stronger, but they have to change in meaning some way. Huh. Like, um, for example, characters met the first time. They had their first uh, situation together. They don't know anything about each other, but now they are stuck in whatever yeah, dire circumstances surround them. And they don't know each other, they might not even know each other, but they decide, all right, we'll go through this together. And that's your basic drive. That that Then it's formed. Your drive evolves over time. The value it uh, has increases because you have more and more history with this one thought or person. And uh, lastly, when it reaches maximum value and evolves one last time, you cross it off completely from your sheet. That thing is done for. That's history. You get some experience or However, I'm going to manage character advancement. Right. Get some stuff to put into cool new abilities, after all. And you gain resolve from it, which means even if you have a long losing streak, um, as long as you keep investing into uh, the story, as long as you keep deciding, even if I'm losing, my character keeps evolving and becoming a different person, growing with his losses, you will get uh, repaid for that and will be given the chance to continue on. On the other hand, if you become apathetic to what's happen, what happens around you, if you do not decide to not care about uh, what you think or the people around you or the events around you, um, one day you will be knocked out. You will lose a fight. You will lose an action scene. And you lose the will to carry on, basically. That's when your resolve hits zero. That's when characters are out of the game. Uh, some things I'm not sure how to handle right now is um, if I should allow people to resolve a drive before it reaches maximum value, because sometimes it becomes pretty difficult to um, continuously evolve an idea. Right. And it becomes done pretty early. If it's clear for you that those two guys are never going to become uh, traitors or mortal enemies, those guys met, they did one thing together, they will be best friends forever, then I think it's a pretty good idea to allow people to resolve this immediately, get a smaller payoff, and be done with it. Because I, I want people to have a limited number of drives just so that that focus doesn't get lost. I think that's that sounds such an interesting system, and it gives you a lot of room to play around with because like, especially you said you cross off what you previously did. That's a very, I'm assuming you mean like physically on the character sheet, you would actually cross off the sentence. Yes. You cross it off or you erase it. You maybe put it down on the backside of your sheet just as a memory to know that's something I've lived through, Yeah, but it's nothing that's relevant right now. Yeah. That's great because I've actually tried to think of something like that myself, how you can, 
um, visually and, and very like officially write down what your character is motivated by, but still not lock them into that and have them evolve as a character because that's obviously where longer term, especially in, in year long campaigns or whatever, that's, that's what really becomes interesting is how your characters all transform over time. And mm-hmm. that, that sounds like a great system. I love, I, I'll yeah. really be looking forward to seeing how that ends up playing out in your system. Um, uh, now that I also thought about it, uh, I feel it's a good point to again uh, invoke those suboptimal decisions that uh, heavily involved meta currencies seem to be all about. Because, um, yeah, you might be in a great position to fill, finish off uh, the current story arc villain. He might be completely open, even off balance. You stand in front of him. But on the other hand, uh, on the other end of the arena, a good friend of yours is also knocked off balance and maybe in in dire danger at that point. And there you have the decision. Do you go and finish off this dude that you know is evil, that you know does bad things to the world around him, but you have no personal involvement with right now? Or do you go back there and save the ass of your buddy? <laughs> and yeah, yeah, and you get rewarded for that because you gain history. On the other hand, you might say, okay, that that dude there is my friend, yes, but I have other priorities. It's more important to me right now to prevent large-scale damage to the world around me. And that's why I decide that this trade is no longer important to me, and I want to start a new rivalry. I want to decide this, this dude, that the enemy I've been just fighting, becomes my new nemesis. Uh-huh. That, that Those would be the two possibilities of evolution at the end of the scene. Yeah. Yeah, there's something there that you can definitely um, force. You force the decisions you make to become articulated mechanically, not not mechanically, but because you're trying to maintain this momentum uh, resolve mechanic, this resource really. You, it's man, it's resource management, but it's the resource is directly tied to your role playing decisions. Um. Yeah. I. Uh. I'd like to say it in the end. I don't know if I will or have achieved it, but um, I'd like it if uh, your resources are coupled to your willingness to try and role play. Um, I fully accept if people just might sit there and ask around in the group, does any of you have an idea how my character would act here? I'm completely stuck right uh-huh. now. It's, I don't want to force people to go into every detail and act everything out selves but uh i want people to accept that there is something that needs to happen to the personality of whoever i'm playing right now that's what i want to achieve with that particular mechanic i think that sounds awesome i don't know if i've ever heard a different system do something like that i uh I, you know for what it's worth as you're explaining it i i got a notepad and i started to write down an idea for my own system so I'm not stealing your idea, but I, it did give me an idea that always me, glad know. to help. Yeah, honestly, I'm I'm largely uh, dabbling in homebrewing. It's largely a hobby for me right now. I'll be glad if I can someday get into get into the privileged position to make at least some bucks of it, or to bring it to the larger world even. But I, I don't plan on living on this or something. No, no, I, I don't think. Anybody at GDG is even dreaming of making a, a full time living off of it, but 
if you can make anything off of it, it's, it's such a rewarding, it would be such a rewarding feeling for sure. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely, I'm going to be looking forward to whatever you end up putting out because, uh, you know, I, when I was talking to Artificer about, about misfortune, it was so hard for me to understand exactly how a system would work, but it, it got me really excited about just seeing somebody pushing the game design of, you know, in that kind of direction. And, uh, what you're trying to do here sounds like a really interesting balancing point that, you know, from the sounds of it, you're not just copying, uh, other existing systems with a small tweak here and there. This, when you put it all together, it sounds like it'd be something that's uh, quite unique. I, I'm wondering why you called it Showtime, or if you, if that's a working name, or are you planning on changing um, it? It's a working name that has a good chance on becoming the final title. Uh, the name sprung to me uh, because I uh, got around to finally playing Devil May Cry, <laughs> right? And just that uh, that call out of. Uh, Dante starting the scene with a it's showtime <laughs> and everything all hell breaking loose. Okay. It was just a moment I realized, all right, that's the way I as a GM would start out a scene with Yeah. Yeah. Almost like uh, instead of roll for initiative, you just say it's showtime. It is far more probable that the subtitle will go or change than the main title. I'm pretty happy sitting around with it right now because yeah. It fits what I'm going to do. Short stories, intense action, yet still some quick and dirty, yet meaningful character development. So that's, to me, that's a great, uh, you know, conceptual system that you have. But I'm currently in the stage of I'm, I'm pretty much happy with my system. And now I'm trying to actually write the rule book. And I can't seem to be satisfied with the way to structure the rule book itself. I, I'm wondering, do you have, like, what what is your work process for just trying to get this on paper and organize all the information? Mm-hmm. And how do you think, you know, do you have like a certain, certain people have like a page limit that they try to work within? Like, I'm trying to do this under a hundred pages or? Um, honestly, uh, I want to stay lightweight. Um, but, uh. I don't have a problem with uh, inflated page counts, for example. Um, my process for Showtime in its current form was largely to nail down uh, what a character, what elements constitute a character, because in the end, that's uh, what the game revolves around. And uh, momentum and resolve and the way they work was initially derived from um, fighting games, uh, also, uh, Exalted 3rd Edition uses a similar thing with its initiative with um, withering and uh, wounding blows, like attacks that are just pressuring op- your opponent, attacks that are actually hurting. Right. It works pretty similar to, mo- to Momentum. But uh, another inspiration to the same end was, for example, Dissidia Final Fantasy, that uh, fighting game series that also has courage attacks that don't do anything but build courage, and HP attacks that expand courage and do actual damage. Uh, those were like the uh, mechanical inspirations that I tried to port back into tabletop format. Hmm. Um, because I really like the decision between banking and ending it all in, in one blow or being safe, yeah. uh, being slow but safe. It's, again, risk versus reward in the end. And I feel that ports back good, that ports in a very simple way back to paper. 
Um, meanwhile, of course, uh, as I started in the beginning, uh, Cortex and other uh, common sense games, right. as I call them, yeah. uh, were also a big inspiration because I often feel if you're just willing to talk about it and accept within the contract that your group has uh, sealed when you began playing, that you uh, know what things to talk about and what input to um, allow and consider when deciding how a scene plays out. And I feel like you don't need to uh, have uh, a rule about how exactly explosions work. Everybody uh -huh. at the table has some conception about how things work. And most people are just exposed enough to media and everything. Everybody knows how an explosion works in an action movie as opposed to a military uh, documentation. Right, yeah. And when you have decided within the group this is an action movie explosion, it's more fire than there would be in a realistic explosion. It's smoke, and all the heroes are not looking at it. Yeah. That's important. <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah, you just... Uh, You need a lot less rules if you just accept that people are going to carry some conceptions and have a way to be a tiebreaker. And that's you. That's where the dice come in. The dice are tiebreakers when opinions clash. To me, I, I, that's such a hard thing for me to accept. I mean, I I know that it's the smart decision and it would cut down so much, but it almost always comes back for me to like I want my game to also educate people on how things actually work. And it's so stupid because I don't really know how things actually work, but you know, you try to do research and you talk to other guys about it and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, in the end, you will have to accept that. First of all, people don't care how things really work. And secondly, it's like anything that you are going to simulate on that level of, of trying to actually educate people about it. Um, you better also make it fun or interesting in some other way because accuracy just for the sake of accuracy isn't, isn't meaningful. Yeah. So. I'm probably going to end up shifting more towards what you call a common sense game, which I think is a, a very funny, uh, probably accurate label for those sorts of games that they don't mm -hmm. work if somebody is trying to overanalyze it too much. But as long as everybody is just sort of playing along and not making a big deal out of small things, it, of course everything will go fine because, you know. And it, you said that you wanted to mix in the idea of sci-fi and fantasy and Other yes. things into the same thing. It, so it's just my quirk that I can't decide on my favorite genre. I love everything. Right. Uh, and, but then if you're, the if, way, uh, if you're not interested yeah. in really simulating, you know, all these different factors, then you also don't have to exactly reconcile how one, you know, what, what magic lasers do versus what a laser gun does. You know, it's like the important thing is that, uh, they, they both exactly. operate the way that the person People at the table imagine that they operate. Yes. That, that's the reason why I implemented that um, attribute and affinity system, because those rough combinations can make up a lot of things that uh, are identical in effect, but different in flavor. I'm curious, did you ever uh, read the book for Savage Worlds? You ever played that or seen um, I didn't read all of it. I just didn't come around to it, but I know that Savage Worlds is a very effects-based game. I heard it's not as um, universal. It's not the wrong, uh, not the right word. 
it's um, not not as all encompassing in amount of effects it can do uh, like mutants and masterminds third edition okay um that one is also like one of those effect based games and it might just have a tad more stuff but yeah you mean like stuff like um it does not matter uh, if your uh area blast effect is a rocket a uh, magical fireball yeah. or some psionic shockwave it's all uh, area damage effect it's in area With damage effect. and you yes. can you can fluff it up however you want and that's yes. part of the appeal of the game um that's a thing i want to do as well just uh, a bit lighter i don't want to go into every effect in depth i will most likely have a lot of staples in there like uh, special modes of movement area damage effects <laughs> Yeah. Things like that. Um, but uh, I want to allow people to uh, insert some creativity and some common sense in there. Just by, uh, uh, I'm putting more, uh, I'm putting more emphasis on uh, mutant scripter. Uh, I assume, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Savage Worlds calls it trapping. I'm putting more emphasis on uh, the description of a power than the rule text of power, really. Yeah. So uh, uh, if someone will, would go ahead and say, well, that guy is sitting in a puddle of water and I have an ice beam, uh, I guess at least mutants and masterminds would say, well, you only have a damaging ice beam power. You can't freeze that dude. You can't freeze the puddle of water and immobilize him. You haven't bought that power. Right. And uh, I would say, yes, your primary, your primary use for that ice beam is hurting people, but yes, absolutely, go ahead, roll the dice, and freeze that pool. It's a, uh, I mean, I don't know if this is a, considered a negative term or not. I think a lot of people really like it. That just the rule of cool is what they call it. You know, you just if it's cool and it it makes some sense, it doesn't break the, the immersion in the whole scene. Then you're pretty much allowed to do it. Yeah, I feel where people start hating the rule of cool is when. People just begin out bullshitting each other. Yeah, exactly. Which is, uh, I suppose you still have, this is where the affinities and stuff would be trying to keep it somewhat in check. You know, the dice pool and stuff that you, how do you um, negotiate that exactly so that, you know, or, or do you just create guidelines in the rules? I wonder if, you know, here's, here's, a, here's a point honestly, at which you might want to not go that far with it. Even though it's an over the top action game, you shouldn't go yes. this far with it. On the other hand, um, I would even say it's all right if people out-bullshit each out other because all it does is allow them to act at peak performance to keep their numbers up. But um, even if people keep out-bullshitting each other to prevent their style dice from decaying, um, they still have a ceiling on what math allows them to do. Ah, at right. some point, they are just going to have some bad luck, get a few ones in their role, and they will lose their check. Even if it makes perfect sense in whatever fiction they have cobbled together, sometimes it's just not enough. And that's the point where people have to accept that, yeah, the dice are the tiebreaker and the dice have decision, have decided, and that's how we're going to do this. So then it's not, yeah, I see what you mean. So it's not rule of cool in the sense that you say yes to everything that's interesting, but it's like you can attempt things, but... The system is still um, enforcing certain limitations, and like you said, you have to cr you have to remain creative as a player yes. if you want to keep up this level um, of that, action. That's honestly a little fear I have. 
that um, uh, I've been struggling a lot between deciding if decisions on a style should be pre-written. Should they be pre-written when the scene starts? Because that often ends up with people just sitting there trying to think of something and their brain freezing up. On the other hand, I don't want to have them permanently the same conditions on their sheet because that means they will use the same abilities every fight. Yeah. Um, and that way, um, I really want uh, people to sit down and create an uh, engaging scene together. And everyone creates a little bit of it. Everybody adds a little bit to the overall situation at some points, uh, which they get into their head, note down on the character sheet. That these are things I can do and want to do in the following scene. Yeah. And after that short thinking, you, you give it a go. You use those pre-established ideas you have and whatever else comes into your, comes to your mind. Embrace it. Just roll with it. Yeah. And, uh, then again comes the point where just rolling with it begins to freeze up. And I hope that I will manage, um, let's say, a numerical scale that things are going to come to a natural end, regardless how creative people are. Like, if you have a bad streak and nobody has ideas, things will be over in like three or five rounds. <laughs> and even if people could go on hours and hours and hours, at some point the story has to go on. And... Uh, they might uh, make some notes, reserve something for later, and uh, carry on from there. To me, so, yeah. To me, it sounds like something that you might want to give the GM uh, some sort of capacity of raising the stakes or doing some other, also sort of a meta action to help pressure or help shape the way that the action goes. If the players have that mm -hmm. sort of freedom uh, to to improvise and, and ramp up the action, the GM might have a symmetrical sort of opposite ability or something like that. Um, there is a thing in Cortex that I love about it. Uh, it's called the, the threat pool or the doom pool in uh, some games. And uh, it increases whenever people roll a one on one on a die in their pool. Oh right. Even if that even if that die is not used in the end result, if they roll a one, the GM has the uh, chance to reward. It's not reward to compensate the player with a point of meta currency, plot points called in Cortex. But on the other hand, he gets to increase the doom pool, and the doom pool can be used for a lot of cool things. It can be used to uh, boost uh, rolls. Uh, for an opponent, and it is used as opposition when there is no named opposition in the scene. When you're like, um, when you're trying to struggle against the environment and things get more and more chaotic, the doom pool increases and thus acting against the environment becomes harder and harder. Oh, right. And, um, usually the doom pool is in a flow, like it, it, it ebbs and it, uh, flows again. You get, uh, some boosts out of it. You might, uh, get a player cold because you have a huge doom pool and can boost your villains to ridiculous levels. But then the doom pool becomes uh, small again and has low impact. Mm -hmm. There's one very cool rule that I didn't come around to using when I was uh, running Cortex. But um, once your doom pool reaches 2d12, you can expand those 2d12 to, immediate, to immediately end the scene in any way you would like it to end, most likely in a way that's bad for the heroes, uh, you recompensate them with experience, 
because they still still com uh, compensated to the scene. But um, yeah, it's basically uh, at that point you say, well, you took too long and things went sour. Go fix it one other day. Oh, wow. The scene ends. You go, uh, you go back to a rest or transition scene. The heroes plan their next step. The villains plan their next step. And then they clash again. A new, pool, uh, a new Doom pool is created. And the whole thing starts uh, from the be beginning. That's uh, honestly the best system I've yet seen to create like a natural cutoff points for a scene. I mean, you say natural, uh, but I think that sounds completely and unnatural. Not I'm natural. Almost... Um, yeah, natural is the wrong, wrong word. Um, it's like a dramatic. To create meaningful, yeah, meaningful cutoff points. Cutoff points that change something in the big picture of everything. It's not just, well, nobody achieved anything, but everybody is too tired to keep on fighting. Wow. But it, that's a that's a crazy idea to me. I mean, as somebody who I guess I'm I must be very simulationist if I judging by my shocked reaction at that kind of mechanic, but uh to me that feels so arbitrary that I um, I would actually be horrified if I if I would never even consider something like that in my game. Not that I'm saying it's bad. It sounds like it makes sense for that particular game to have that, but because there's so much meta currency and sort of, you know, playing around with with the stakes and stuff like that, but that's a very that's a very powerful tool that I would think has to be used very responsibly. Your your shocked reaction to the uh, let's say forced end to the scene uh, reminded me of the uh, reaction a lot of the community had uh, when XCOM 2 announced that missions are going to have a time limit. Oh yeah, that's, that was one of them. That, that, that reminds me of that uh, let's say artificial pressure it builds. Though I feel it makes perfect sense in the fiction of that game for things to be heated. Though one might, of course, say that it might be uh, uh, a higher work of art within uh, game design to um, create that pressure naturally through elements that are not just arbitrarily enforced and set to a set number. Yeah, actually, but, XCOM uh, 2, I was a huge fan of XCOM 1, the, like the original... 90s version and uh, I was mm -hmm. definitely shocked and, and sort of baffled by the decision to forcefully include that kind of mechanic but you know you can't deny that it does create a very specific tone and feeling in the game that they wanted to create so in a sense yes. they accomplished exactly what they wanted I feel it it achieves a great thing to me in that it um, makes turn-based gameplay feel hectic Yes, that's true. And that's really cool to me. It might not be everyone's cup of tea, but uh, I like it personally. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Uh, I really love this conversation, and I was glad to have you on. I think uh, I'm looking forward to finding out what, what Showtime is going to end up being. If Hopefully you can put it out as a, as a proper document someday, but in the meantime, GDG is going to be there for us to uh, discuss things. And yeah. I definitely would like to have you back on some point, maybe when you're closer to finished. Yeah, if, if I find another day, it's lucky today. Yeah, yeah, it was really good that we, we managed to get this in when you had an opportunity. Um, I think that's basically going to be it for this episode. So thank you for coming on and, uh, I'll definitely, I'll see you back on GDG and we can, we can uh, talk more about it once this episode is out and people know more about what you're developing. I'm, guessing that people are going to want to ask you some stuff and, you, and you're going to get more feedback on your ideas. I very much hope so. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, All right. 
we'll talk to you again uh, next time if you're on. Yep. Bye. I love talking to guys like the Hummel because they bite off interesting projects and then they got to chew on them and they create interesting problems for themselves from a design perspective. And those problems, if you can solve them, they end up being your biggest selling points. So I look forward to seeing what he does much more than I would look forward to somebody just sort of doing a predictable or easy game design as somebody who's just a a big fan of game design itself and solving these very weird problems that come up. Uh, sometimes very psychological problems, sometimes very mechanical problems, and often a blend of those two that I, I just can't get enough of. So I was very happy to have that discussion. I invite anybody listening, if you have your own game design problems, even if you're not even close to solving them, come on and talk about it because it turns out we're actually all pretty much in the same boat. We're all trying to do something different, and we all have to overcome Some very weird abstract hurdles to get there. So I hope you enjoyed that. Go on GDG, have some fun discussions, get crazy, and I'll see you around.